The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. It's the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change from the studios of X-Ray FM. I'm Ann Kirkpatrick. Coming up on today's Nonprofit Hour, Adam Davis of Oregon Humanities. And we really think about the humanities as tools, tools to get people connecting and talking. Then we revisit our popular interview with Nathan Buck of SMART. I, I, I want to hold books, and I want, and all I see around me are people who, who want to carry these books around, take them home, because it's an object of pride. But first, this story from X-Ray FM producer and Radio U graduate Temple Lentz. In a nondescript building on a quiet street in downtown Vancouver, Washington, six blind students are learning how to tune pianos. They've come from as far away as New York and as close as Portland, Oregon, and they're taking an 18-month-long program to learn how to tune and fix pianos and how to turn that into a business when they get out of school. This is the uh, piano that I actually tuned completely, and I finished tuning it yesterday. Stefan is from New York State. He's waiting for his instructor to give him his next assignment, so he just sat down to play for a little while. The School of Piano Technology for the Blind was founded in 1949. Every year, this accredited technical school graduates one to six students who are prepared to earn an independent living and run their own business. The class sizes may be small, but this is a big deal. The unemployment rate for blind and visually impaired adults is nearly 70%. Most of the students are in their early to mid-20s, recently out of high school or college. Stefan, who's playing the piano he tuned himself, also taught himself this song. That is actually from a video game. Final Fantasy X. Don Mitchell, the director of instruction, knows the program works because he went through it himself. I learned right here. I started in 1971. In June of 1973, I graduated. And in July of 1973, they hired me to work for them, and I've been here ever since. And basically what I do is I go in and I untune something, and I tune it with them listening. And I explain to them what I'm doing, and I make sound effects, and I do everything I can to try to get them to understand. And then I say, okay, now you try it. Don wasn't exaggerating when he said he untunes the pianos so students can tune them. I followed him into one of the workrooms and watched him crawl under the piano to completely dismantle the pedal system. Now this is something that oftentimes has to be done when you're surfacing a piano because the springs in the system will break and so you have to replace them. So I'm making sure that he knows how to dismantle and re- reassemble all of this. Jim, who enrolled this past fall, just turned 39. He came to the school because he wanted more. More for himself and more for his young family. I I love the idea of, like, having that specific knowledge of a skill of being my own boss and having tools. Man, that sounds really macho and cool. But I have been trying to get my stuff together. I I got married and I... uh, (laughs) We had a son, and, uh, you know, it is time that I uh, be able to help provide for my family in, in, in a meaningful way, not just, you know, bring home a paycheck, but be proud of myself and have my family be proud of me, too. 
I think all of us come into life with feelings about who we are and what we're capable of and you know we either have a lot of confidence or we don't. One of the things that this program does because it's really hard and especially blind people they're not really sure what they can do what they're capable of doing and they discover they can do something that's really hard and that they can do it well and it is a life-changing activity to go through that struggle does something to you inside it, it changes you it makes you a confident person and what we want is people to leave here with the confidence and the ability to live independently and to be happy doing it and that's really the core of it students come here to learn a trade and they leave with a whole lot more That story was produced by Temple Lentz as part of the Media Institute for Social Change's Radio U program in partnership with X-Ray FM. Now we turn to our host, Julie Falk. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie Falk. This is the Nonprofit Hour brought to you by the Media Institute. And today I am talking to Adam Davis, Executive Director of Oregon Humanities. Hi, Adam. Hey, Julie. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you, too. So... You uh, came to Portland how many years ago now? Just under two years. Two years. And you came for the job at Oregon Humanities, is that right? That was a good part of it, yeah. yeah. The place was part of it. Having a couple young kids was part of it, too. Uh-huh. And so where did, where did you move from? Chicago. And what were you doing in Chicago? So one of the things I was doing was running an organization called the Center for Civic Reflection, mm -hmm. uh, which worked around the country getting people talking about uh, all sorts of tough questions and training people to lead those kinds of discussions. That's actually how I got to know Oregon Humanities, mm -hmm. uh, working with a number of different humanities councils, training facilitators. For those uh, listeners who don't know Oregon Humanities and aren't familiar with its mission and the organization, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. I'll tell you what we try to do first and then can give you a little bit more of the history. But what we try to do is get people talking across difference, especially about tough questions. So another way to think about that is reflection and connection. Try to get people thinking, try to get people connecting with the idea that any work we want to get done in the world uh, more effective if we're listening to people we disagree with, if we feel more connected to the outcomes of the, that work ourselves, and if we're more imaginative and empathetic. It's very interesting to me that that sounds like the organ humanities that I have heard of over the years before you even came. And so it sounds like you you were ready for organ humanities and organ humanities was ready for you in terms of the vision. Uh, but where is the organization today and where has it been? State humanities councils in general have been around for about 40 years uh, since the mid, actually more than that, mid 60s, National Endowment for the Humanities started. And then in the 70s, there were experiments with statewide affiliates. Uh, and in some ways, I think they used to be more traditional academic, uh, sort of public academic organizations. And now there's a spectrum of what humanities councils do. I think Oregon Humanities is very much on the civic engagement side, uh, a little bit less on the heritage and history side. And we really think about the humanities as tools, tools to get people connecting and talking. Um, so... As an organization, we went through recently and, and came up with a vision, which is, I'll just say it right now, it's an Oregon that invites diverse perspectives, explores challenging questions, and strives for just communities. And we take the verb seriously, invites, explores, and strives, but also the fact that we have the word justice in our mission, or at least the adjective just, is uh, 
I think a little bit unusual and also shows really what, what we're committed to. doesn't mean we know what justice means, but we think that that's why it's important to do this kind of work, is to strengthen the way we live together. How are you finding Portland? Uh, you know, I'm coming from Chicago, so Portland is relatively congenial um, in that uh, there's a lot of access to people. People answer the phone. People are ready to uh, meet and talk. Uh, and here, you know, we're a statewide organization, so it's not just Portland that I'm finding. It's also you know, Grants Pass and LeGrand and really trying to get out around the state. And so Oregon has a version of the perceived rural-urban split that Illinois also had uh, in different ways. But so that's, I think, one of the challenges that our 10 or 11-person organization has is that we we got to be working statewide. Yeah. Tell me more about that and, and how you get out into those communities. We get out in a few ways. I think uh, one of our key programs is called the Conversation Project. It's a rotating catalog of about 30 or 35 topics. It could be guns in America or why aren't there more black people in Oregon or what we want from the wild. And any community organization around the state can request any one of those topics. And we're seeing more of those happen outside the Willamette Valley than inside the Willamette Valley. So that's a great source of statewide work is whether it's the Tillamook County Pioneer Museum or the Crook County Public Library in Prineville, uh, groups getting together to talk about hard questions. And those questions echo differently depending on where you are, which is one of the really interesting things to see. Um, We also give grants around the state, although it's not a huge part of what we do. And then, of course, we publish a magazine, um, which reaches about 15,000 people around the state. And the online stuff that accompanies the magazine, and in some cases even precedes it, uh, is also getting not just around the state, but around the country. So uh, another program I mentioned to you, Idea Lab, which is with rising high school seniors thinking about the pursuit of happiness, that involves about 150 young people. And they, too, come from around the state. And I think they're one of the one of the really big... Uh, things about the program that works well is that you have young people from different parts of the state, different kinds of schools, different backgrounds, all together for a few days thinking about what it is that makes them and other people happy. And teachers the same way, 18 teachers getting professional development to lead this remark on just how important it is to have these kids essentially mixing together. Is the Idea Lab something that originated from Oregon Humanities? Yeah, in fact, uh, it started here and now we've seen other humanities councils picking it up and... uh, under different names, running versions of it, and even uh, we won a, a national prize for it last year at the Federation of State Humanities Councils gathering, which is nice, although it's uh, it's a small prize, but still nice to get some recognition for an innovative program. Uh, another program we've been running here that's been picked up in all sorts of places is called Think and Drink, and it's, uh, you know, we actually have it's been recently Cheryl Strayed, Barry Lopez, Walida Imarisha. We'll have Eula Biss coming up later this summer talking about immunity and community. Uh, so, But that's another one where it's just trying to get people talking wherever they are, go where they are, uh, try to create space and structure for people to get into questions and hear each other and enjoy it as well. And how does Oregon Humanities differ from the other statewide humanities councils in terms of its focus on civic engagement? I think the first way is in terms of format. So participation is really what we're after. We're trying wherever possible to ensure that uh, everyone is involved and that there's... uh, So our expertise is at least as much around getting people talking as it is around a particular topic. 
And so that means that it's not always uh, a professor that's leading programs. It might be someone with uh, good experience in the subject, someone for whom a question is alive rather than someone who has studied it, written a couple books on it. I think there are strengths of both, and we're trying to make sure that both are uh, there to lead conversations. So format's one part, and the other part is really keeping in mind the end. Why is it important to get people thinking and talking? And it's not... uh, in a way, a kind of simply a learning throughout life argument. It's really that if we're thinking about questions, if we're talking about the hard stuff, it's going to strengthen the way we live together, both as communities and even as individuals as well. So, Adam, you brought some music to share with our listeners today. What have you brought? How about Al Green, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? I can think of younger days When I lived for my life was everything a man could want to do I could never see tomorrow I was never told about the This is the Nonprofit Hour brought to you by the Media Institute. And today I am talking to Adam Davis, Executive Director of Oregon Humanities. I'm really curious to know how Oregon Humanities thinks about engagement and participation and, and who is your audience because you're a funding organization, you're, a, you're an organization that brings people together, you have readers, you have donors, you have supporters. Who, who, who makes up Oregon Humanities and, and what does it mean to be engaged and how are the different ways to be engaged? Thanks for that question. And you're right. You point to, I think, some of the complexity of our organization, which is we're Uh, topically agnostic to some degree. So we range across a wide number of topics and also lots of different audiences from high school students to uh, low-income adults who participate in a college course we run called Humanity in Perspective. And then, as you say, donors are a big part of what we do and grantee organizations around the state, public libraries. I think for me, it's important to keep in mind that what we're after, if we're speaking boldly about what we do, is culture change. And so that requires a lot of different vehicles and a lot of different tactics. But that range of tactics is unified by the end we're after. And so the more people we can get involved, the better. Of course, we have to make choices about where to direct limited resources. Uh, But we try to make those with the end in mind and thinking really strategically. Why is it important to be working with low-income adults for nine months, twice a week. That's a big uh, input of staff time and money, and it's completely worth it because of the transformative effect it has, not only on the people in the room, from the students to the teachers and the interns, but also on the families of those people involved. Um, So that's one extreme, I think, of uh, sort of depth of interaction. 
And then there's some lighter touch, lower access, uh, lower barrier, easier access, like the magazine, for example, which anyone can pick up on their own without going anywhere. Um, but I think it's important for us to continue trying in all these different ways to reach people. And in the magazine, are you talking to all of those audiences? It's a good question. I think uh, we're talking to a range of audiences in the magazine. And one of the reasons we're trying to do a bunch of work online now with podcasts and short videos and a blog um, is to reach, again, a wide range. Um, It happens that I think, you know, your earlier question about where we're coming from, as we've surveyed our readers and participants, I think it used to be a little older, a little more college-educated, Um, In some cases, majority advanced degrees, and that's shifting, Um, which is not to say we're losing those folks, but also we're seeing more people who are younger, who don't necessarily have advanced degrees or college education are coming in. And that's what we want to see is we want to see participation that reflects the demographic of the state. You referred to your mission and to your vision. What what kind of change does Oregon Humanities want to see in our state? We want to see a more connected state, uh, a more imaginative state, a more vital state. And so those, those can seem a little abstract, uh, but there are ways to measure it. Did you, you know, it can be as simple as, did you talk to someone today or hear from someone today you hadn't talked to before? Did you hear a perspective you hadn't heard before? Did you think fresh about an idea that you thought you were committed to before you came in? Did you share what you talked about with someone outside this room? Uh, how did this affect what you're going to try to do in the world? So, for example, to go back to one of the conversation projects I mentioned, why aren't there more black people in Oregon, a hidden history? One of the outcomes of getting people together to think about that question has been the formation of work groups. Now, Oregon Humanities doesn't organize that work group and isn't uh, prescribing what the outcome should be, but we absolutely hope that many of our discussion format programs lead to people continuing to get together. We're about to launch a series of statewide discussions on death and dying. Um, We've assembled a team of facilitators who we had together for a training day, again, from around the state. And there will be resources that people can go to for the decisions they're going to make. But that's after the discussion, which is going to be an open-ended, reflective discussion full of questions meant to generate yet more questions while also providing tools to answer those. You've already alluded to two very tough questions. Why are there not more black people in Oregon? And um, the questions that are raised through the conversations that you'll be having about death and dying, what other tough questions do you um, are you having right now or do you want people to be having? We're in the midst of a year of pretty in-depth conversation series uh, for military veterans and their families, uh, thinking about uh, coming home, what it means to come home, uh, not only for people that have served, but also for a country that has signed off on asking people to serve. And we're especially getting conversations going across generations and across different wars. Uh, And these in general are facilitated by people who themselves have served. And we're finding that these are really uh, necessary and uh, having really strong impact on the people in the room. Um, The conversation project in general is framed around questions. So it could be, why do we intervene in the lives of others? What good are we hoping to get done and how do we know when it's working? Uh, It could be about things like the rural-urban divide that I mentioned earlier or what we want from the wild 
the nice thing is there's no shortage of important questions to talk about, and it's very hard to talk about them and be done with them. These are questions that often stay with us. Are there questions that you've thought about posing that you thought, no, you know what, this isn't the right time. This is an important question, but the timing isn't right. Yeah. Or we don't have the resources or we're not the right organization to pose them. Yeah. I think in general, uh, that's the challenge. Is The challenge, that is, is what to say no to. Um, And it's related to resources more than anything else. It's that we have a limited number of people, limited number of hours, and we really want to make sure that given our vision, given that orientation towards justice, that we're asking questions that are really getting after things that maybe aren't being talked about enough. Um, So there's any number of questions we could be talking about, but I think the further it feels from that vision of inviting diverse perspectives, exploring challenging questions, and striving for just communities, the harder it is to make a case for putting resources there. Now, we just finished up a series on race and policing, a series of programs around Portland, and that was a responsive set of programs. And I think, I guess that's the other part of what you're asking. Uh, In addition to how do we know when to say no, there's the question of what to say yes to. And more and more we want to be saying yes to what feels like uh, an emergent question, a question where we're clearly working with community partners, new and prospective, where they're there seems to be a gap. Um, And one thing that Oregon Humanities can bring is neutrality. Uh, We're not affiliated with a specific outcome, which I think can open up a space to really have a discussion that in some cases can be hard to have otherwise. So Oregon Humanities has a staff of? 10 going on 11, also five interns, a board of about 20, a number of volunteers, and as you say, many donors as well. Mm-hmm. So you're getting a lot of work done, and you're asking a lot of hard questions. Uh, who are who do you who do you partner with in order to to get these to get this work done? Everything from public libraries all around the state and library systems to community colleges, and in some cases, universities, uh, social service organizations. We recently ran a program with Adelante Mujeres uh, that was a spin-off of our Humanity and Perspective program. So it was a a five-session discussion series in Spanish, uh, getting at some big questions around civic engagement and participation. Um, In general, I think our partners are, you know, we just actually partnered with Right Around Portland on another spinoff from Humanity and Perspective. Idea Lab has 18 different schools involved from around the state, from LaGrande and Sisters, Portland, Medford. Uh, So they run the gamut from social service organizations to libraries, uh, and in some cases, political organizations. I was just down leading a conversation project with the Siskiyou Field Institute. Uh, We also partner with other Oregon Cultural Trust partners, um, Oregon Historical Society, Heritage, uh, the Arts Commission. So really trying to see where the overlap is. All right, Adam, what are we going to listen to next? So uh, Janelle Monet, Tightrope, uh, because I think uh, just the challenge of... Uh, falling off when you're trying to do hard work and uh, and because I can't forget the video
This is the Nonprofit Hour brought to you by the Media Institute. And today I am talking to Adam Davis, Executive Director of Oregon Humanities. I love talking about cultures of organizations and even even down to the office environment. And I'm curious, um, for the change that Oregon wants, I mean, Oregon Humanities wants to see across our state, how do you, how do you take those values um, and apply them to the culture of the organization at a more micro level? Nice timing to ask the question. We just moved in the last two days. Uh, we moved our office. And one of the important things about the office move is that uh, we're in a much more visible, public, interactive place, uh, right on the street, essentially, on the mezzanine, windows opening out. And then it's an open office. And we're it's to make sure that we're doing the very same stuff that we're saying everyone else out in community ought to be doing. Um, we're also trying to work in teams and responsively as much as possible. So kind of breaking down a bit of the, this is what development does, this is what communications does, this is what programs does, so that we have these project teams working on everything. The way we ran the race and policing programs was with this interdisciplinary team idea, and that's how we're going to be pushing. Uh, I think the other thing to say is uh, getting out and talking to people all of our staff, even if you don't know quite what it is you're talking about, go talk to other organizations, see what they're thinking about, see what their questions are, and then see maybe there's some overlap here. Maybe what they do and what we do is going to have a nice little sweet spot of, of cooperation. That, that's, that's really interesting. Um, the idea of taking the interdisciplinary approach to a topic and Within a small organization with a small staff sounds pretty innovative, actually. Is that where, how did that idea come to you or to the organization? I mean, I'm happy to say that you asked earlier about Oregon Humanities and why I came out here. And one of the reasons was because I had met some people that worked at Oregon Humanities before getting here. And uh, we have a, I think we have a really great staff. And so just about everything we do is uh, interdisciplinary in the sense that people are, a group of people are contributing. Um, it's funny to say that there's something innovative about working together rather than in departments. I remember when I was in grad school and I was studying, you know, I studied some long dead philosophers. I studied political philosophy. And there's this point in Plato's Republic where in speech they're setting up the ideal city. And early on Socrates says, and in this new city we're setting up, the, the principle is essentially going to be one man, one job. And the people he's talking to, Glaucon and Adamantus, just assent. They go, yeah, one man, one job. Let's keep going. And at that point, I always would stop and go, are you crazy? One ma That's not how I think we're set up. I don't think we're each set up to do just one thing. Uh, I think we're all set up to do a few things, and that's how we function best. And that's what I think we ought to be doing in our office as well. We're trying to make it happen. There are things that compel uh, certain people and certain departments to own items and be most accountable, but still to figure out how to do it productively so that you have new ideas coming in all the time. I just think that's very inspirational. Um, you know, we're the nonprofit hour. We talk to a lot of different nonprofit organizations. And I think in the life cycle of a nonprofit, you often see people wearing different hats and yeah. there, it is more interdisciplinary or not even interdisciplinary, but there's more of, you know, people, people playing different roles. And it's often considered that that's in a kind of early phase of an organization. And I like the way you're talking about a mature organization or a maturing organization taking that and, and really making the best out of it. Trying. I mean, I, the, other, the other answer to your question about our internal culture is one of experimentation. And that is 
We are a small organization, and that gives us some freedom to continue to try and adjust pretty quickly by being reflective ourselves about what's working and what isn't. And uh, if it turns out we're pushing too far, pushing people too far either out of their comfort zone or uh, sort of losing too much uh, unity and energy in any position because it's getting too diffuse, we'll have to pull it back. But right now it feels like it's really generating a lot of uh, enthusiasm and imagination for how we might do things. What is on your reading list these days? Oh, it's a good question. Uh, I often read for work because I end up doing things like you're doing with me right now where I'll interview people. Recently interviewed Ruth Ozeki and uh, Walida Imarisha, and we'll be interviewing Eula Biss. Uh, I'm reading Juno Diaz's recent collection right now. Uh, tend to like uh, tend to like fiction a lot. Just read... Uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, David Schaefer, who's a Portland-based author. Um, so trying to read a lot of Oregonians. I haven't been out here yet two years and trying to read as many people writing out here as possible, but also following the leads of our program. So Atul Gawande on Being Mortal, trying to read a lot of military veterans writing about their service, help shape that program a bit, those sorts of things. So how, how can people get involved in Oregon Humanities? Yeah, people can get involved uh, in a number of ways. I think the first is to come out for programs, come out for a conversation project by looking at our calendar online at oregonhumanities.org, participate in a conversation project, or come to a think and drink. Uh, we have volunteers who have contributed mightily to many of the things we do, so that's that's always something to think about. Uh, also, we're open to thinking about new partnerships and new programs, and if you have ideas, we'd love to hear them. We are growing our pool of facilitators over the next few years. That's one of the big emphases we have as part of our business plan right now. And so uh, discussion leaders need not, uh, need not come from a certain background. And in a way, what we want is really diverse teams of people um, helping other folks talk about questions that are key to them. Uh, of course, people can get involved by supporting the organization. And I think at any level, again, that to me... Uh, when we get, you know, $5 gifts, $10 gifts, that's as important and, and in a way encouraging as gifts that have more zeros attached to them. Um, I should say, I don't know who's listening, and I should say our Humanity and Perspective program for low-income adults has had a really transformative effect on a lot of people. And if that's the entry point for some listeners, I hope they'll they'll check into that. We'll be accepting applications this summer for a program that starts in September. So those are some of the quick ways. And uh, I think checking out our site sometimes can give people ideas. Because we run a range of programs, sometimes I think just looking and going, oh, wait, that's where, that's where I see the entry point um, will help. Well, thank you, Adam. This has been really interesting. And um, I would love to continue the conversation, but we need to say goodbye for today. This has been the Nonprofit Hour brought to you by the Media Institute. And you can be in conversation with Adam and with Oregon Humanities through all the different conversations they're having across the state. And I do welcome you to go and look at the website of Oregon Humanities and to, and to become a part of the conversation. All right, Adam, what are we going to go out with today? What's the last thing you've brought for us to listen to? How about Woody Guthrie working hard blues? Uh, since the nonprofit hustle can feel that way sometimes, and uh, there's also good humor in there as well. Great, thank you. I was born working and I worked my way up by hard work. I ain't ever got nowhere yet, but I got there by hard work. Work of the hardest kind. I've been down and I've been out. 
I've been disgusted and busted and I couldn't be trusted. I worked my way up and I worked my way down. I've been drunk and I've been sober and I've been baptized and got hijacked. I've been robbed for cash and I've been robbed on credit. Worked my way in jail and I worked my way out of jail. Woke up a lot of mornings, didn't know where I was at. You're listening to the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change and produced in the studios of X-Ray FM. Next up, we'll hear from Nathan Buck in an interview from earlier this year that's one of our favorites. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. We are excited to have Nathan Buck uh, with SMART. Uh, start making a reader today. Yep. Uh, and, and morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. It's pretty great. Absolutely. Absolutely, Nathan. And and uh, just to be specific, Nathan, you're the program manager there? I'm one of the program managers. Okay. So there's four of us in the Portland area. There's lots of amazing managers all across the state. But the other managers and I split up our districts um, in Portland for Clackamas, uh, Washington, and Multnomah counties. What is your, what's your jurisdictional turf? Wow, that's that, Sounds fancy. Um, <laughs> so I cover all three of those counties. Um, I'm in Milwaukee a lot of the time, um, Oregon City a little bit, pushing into Gladstone. That's one area I'm focusing on. But I also do inner southeast, uh, some schools around the Tiger, Tualatin, Beaverton area as well. So it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to work with so many diverse populations across Portland and get to know all of the people in the school, the principals, the teachers, all these amazing children we're working with. It's a pretty amazing experience. You know, and I think a good place to start the discussion is is maybe not the most uh, uh, optimistic news, but it's it's recently come out, the graduation rates uh, for, for Oregon, and, and they're just, they're, they're dismal. Yeah, but, there's there's been a lot of talk in this country about education, and this has obviously been going on for, for years and years, and those of us involved in the nonprofit sectors want to do our part to be able to give back. And that's that's what's so amazing about SMART. We focus on pre-K through third graders. That's the those are the kids we wanna we wanna work with the most because it's been proven that if you get on track with your reading and, and your literacy by third grade, you'll be able to communicate much better in life. Uh, embrace opportunities that may come up that may be college, that may be a non-traditional path. But overall, you'll be much more on track in your later teen years and, and beyond if you're on track with your reading by third grade. So we really want to hit that benchmark, and that's why we focused on the pre-K through third graders. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, the, 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 the low graduation rates uh, for Oregon, uh, the reason that I bring it up is, is reading is just, it's one of those cornerstones, you know, and, and if kindergartner, second grader, third grader doesn't have those skills, I mean, there's just, it just seems like the, 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 the battle is going to be so steep. You know, so many people in this world, well, all of us have things stacked against us, but a lot of the, the kids we're working with, they might be part of Title I schools, might be might have free and reduced lunches. Things may be going on at home with, with their families that are pretty intense uh, situations. So we work hard to identify which kids we want to work with so that we can, you know, help them make some really amazing choices, help their parents make choices. All of our children get to bring home brand new books. I'll, I'll dive into how we structure that in a little bit. But all the kids get to take home these books and share them with their parents, share them with their siblings. 
And so we want to do our part to uh, help them at that earlier critical age so that they can go into their, yeah, go into their future with um, some brighter options and, and some self-confidence about how they're going to embrace those opportunities. And, and what, what are you looking at as the factors? It seems to be uh, working class is, is, is struggling with, with education, with literacy. Well, we have a pretty interesting demographic. It's all, you know, we have people all across the board, you know, all different races, all different religions, people who don't speak English as a first language. So we've really noticed, uh, yeah, different economic levels, like you said. So when we come in, we really identify the kids that, you know, may fit into one of those some of those, all of those, and then we will identify them and hook them up with our with our readers. So what happens is our volunteers come in, they volunteer for an hour a week. I should say our, so there's two different kinds of volunteers, and I'll uh, talk a little bit more about our amazing site coordinators in a second. But if readers come in, they come in, they sign up for an hour a week, they get placed at a school. Ideally, they'll come at the beginning of the school year and be there from October all the way through May, and they'll be assigned... Usually it's two kids in an hour. So they might be with Susie for a half hour and then Jose for a half hour. And they're going to be with Susie and Jose for that entire school year. So it's not just about the reading piece, which is so critical to everyone in this country, but it's also about that mentorship piece. Mm -hmm. So these people who are maybe dealing with some things in life that that some of us take for granted, they're going to be able to have this adult mentor in their lives. And I think it equals around 28... 28 weeks that uh, they get to form this bond with these kids. And then they get to not only read with them, they get to help the kids select the books. And so there's just a lot going on that, that ripples out outside just the literacy realm. And which is, I mean, which which is why it's so high. You're saying you're working with about 9,100 kids, yep. K through th- third grade, and yep. you have about 5,000 volunteers. Correct. I mean, that's an incredible ratio. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. We uh, let me tell you some amazing stats. You know, in the 22 years Smart's been around, we've helped more than 170,000 kids. Whoa! Yep, helped them build their reading skills and self confidence with the help of nearly 114,000 volunteers, and we've given away more than two million books for kids who who need them the most. We're in 28 of Oregon's 36 counties. I just, I just counties. want to pause real fast. Yeah. So 170,000. <laughs> so that's excited. that that's uh, the size of Eugene. Roughly, yes. yeah. I never thought of it that way, but that is true. You, 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 you've roughly taught. I mean, if you would populate uh, Eugene with uh, uh, five to eight-year-olds, mm-hmm. you taught help teach them to read or get them hooked on books, and you've given away the equivalent of roughly the uh, the Multnomah County Downtown Library. Those. I'm so glad you phrased it that way. It's an, it's a it's a great visual. It's a great statistic for people to view. And and for the record, we serve pre K through th- uh, pre K as well. So three okay. and four year olds. Oh great! So that, a city full of uh, three, four, <laughs> five, six, and seven year olds sounds like uh, quite a place. No, it's 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 been great. We you know a group of uh, concerned business leaders came together in 1991 to address this troublesome reality that Oregon's children were routinely reading below the grade level, and and since then our unique model was developed. It's it's fun to hear some of the success stories that have rippled into the staff as well. We have a a great uh, staff team member named Tim. He's one of our assistant managers. He was in Smart as a child in Bend, and now he is on board at staff in the main you know at Smart in the main offices downtown uh, in in Portland. And now he gets to give back in a way that was given to him, which is pretty amazing. That is great. 
And one other thing I wanted to share is that SMART was the recipient of the Library of Congress Literacy Award in 2014. Um, they won the American Prize category. Uh, we were selected from hundreds of applications from organizations throughout the nation. And this is awarded to an organization that's made a significant and measurable contribution to increasing literacy levels. So we got a $50,000 grant, grant. We're able to funnel that right back uh, into serving the needs of our kids. Our, our great executive director, Chris Otis, was able to fly out to D.C. and accept that award uh, last October. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Nathan Buck with SMART. Uh, this is Phil Bussing. That's the nonprofit hour. Nathan, one of the things we ask our guests to do is come in and pick a song. Sometimes the song relates back to what they're talking about. Other times it's just what they're in the mood for. You, you have any music queued up for us today? I do have some great music queued up. Uh, along with my, my team members, we came up with, with a good list. 1984 by uh, David Bowie. Excellent. And, and why, why 1984? I, 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 I love that song, but uh, <laughs> is there a significance to that? We tried to find songs that tied into literature, even if that was looser in some of these examples coming up. But uh, 1984, it's a pretty powerful book, so why not uh, share a powerful song and go along with it? Excellent. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. That was David Bowie with uh, uh, his cover of George Orwell's 1984. I am sitting talking with Nathan Buck from SMART, Start Making a Reader Today, which is a, a, a statewide organization that helps, uh, helps pre-K through third grade uh, learn to read, get literacy skills, get hooked, uh, get interested in reading. Um, Nathan, I want to talk about some of the cultural struggles that there have to be. I, I, your organization started in 1991. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, 1991, there, there, there weren't, I mean, you certainly you had, you had Atari and you had some Game Boys. You didn't have the amount of screen time, the, the distractions. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I think we could say it's not as visual of a world back then. Books were more of at, at the core of 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 um, people's lives is that I mean is that a correct assessment that that's one of the struggles you're dealing with? You know, to me, you know, I'm a little I'm a little old fashioned, like you know. So personally, I'm you know a Facebook holdout. I one of those weird people not on Facebook, and I there's to me I love I I, I want to hold books, and I want and all I see around me are people who who want to carry these books around, take them home because it's an object of pride. Scholastic and our other book vendors, you know, we, we work with them to get these books, so they're all free to the kids. 
And the kids get to have these book plates where they write their name or the readers write their name for them. And it's a sense of ownership because they get to put this book plate on the book and, and carry it around. So sure, there's lots of competing stuff. And certainly when I'm in the schools with the kids, you hear them talking about the latest movies and games and, and whatnot, just like anybody else. But um, it certainly hasn't uh, negated the, the magic of the books whatsoever. What are, what are some of the books that are popular? Is Where the Wild Things still a popular read? Yeah, Where the Wild Things Are, it's one of my favorites as well. It's a great book. We have book award nominees. Every year we do kind of our version of the Oscars, and the kids get to vote on the books. And I know there's one, I think it's Polar Bear versus Grizzly Bear that's really popular right now. So it's a way for the kids to learn but also get a, to get excited and, and uh, learn something about science or math, you know, through, mm-hmm. through, through a book format. Um, and it's pretty amazing. And, and one thing I, I want to make sure to, to get in is is it's not just the readers. We have we have great site coordinators, all of the sites, who are the lead volunteers, who schedule the readers. They go through intense trainings. And so I just you have to make sure to give a shout out because without our site coordinators putting in all of their time and effort uh, behind the scenes, the the SMART program just wouldn't be able to to come to fruition. And and, and so let's, tell me a little bit more about what a site coordinator does and, and what's – because obviously a, a reader – it's a volunteer. They show up. You know, they have they they like you said they they mentor or they connect. They're connected mm-hmm. for about a half a year to two two specific students. Yep. Site coordinator is so they are also a volunteer, which which is amazing. They but they 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 put in more time because they are going to be going onto our Google Docs, uh, contacting the readers, getting them set up with the schedules, doing the the reader trainings. The site coordinators are the ones who are kind of on the front line at all of the schools and are nurturing those relationships with the principals and, and the secretaries and the custodians. So I, I can't say enough great things. And I personally work with 33 site coordinators who then work with all of the readers in my district. It's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, people out in the field. <laughs> There's a lot of people out in the field. And, you know, it certainly takes a village. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am talking with Nathan Buck, who works with smart start making a reader today it's it's a really it's a and it's amazingly it's a massive program that works statewide uh with with uh pre-k through third graders helping with literacy skills Mm -hmm. uh and and developing uh connection to books uh nathan you were you were working with another really wonderful nonprofit before this you were last with our house Correct. Uh, I just came on board at SMART uh, in July of 2014. And before that, I was with Our House for about six and a half years and a volunteer for about two and a half before that. And at Our House, we worked with people with HIV AIDS who live below the poverty line and may also be dealing with some other things in, in their lives. And I loved being with Our House. It's, 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 it's an amazing organization that's been around about the same amount of time as SMART. And I think one thing that's really interesting is a lot of the people we work that our house works with, are, you know, have made some decisions in their life where then we, you know, our house gets to step in and say, "Hey, you've made this decision. Maybe we can embrace some healthier options and ways to, to, to make some different uh, choices in the future." And then I've been reflecting on that as I've started at Smart, and it's been interesting because we get to be with all these kids who may have some stuff going on in their lives, but we get to say, "Hey, why don't we?" look at some other paths and trajectories from the start and maybe take those those 
those steps in that in that other direction from an earlier age. So it's been interesting for me personally to see the similarities and and the differences in in, in the two jobs and and how there's this great need in in Portland for both and how Portland has so many great opportunities to get involved and and give back no matter what group of people you want to work with. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm glad you brought that up about that idea of 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 choices and 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 seeing that as a common denominator between uh the the two places that you've you've been functioning most recently in the nonprofit world, I mean, because they, they uh, on the surface they are very different organizations. Was was there um, a conscious choice to switch to children's literacy? For me, um, I I was an English major. I went to UW Madison and and got a degree in English and film, and then actually moved out to Oregon to get my master you know my master's in creative writing at at Oregon State. Uh, our house certainly has a huge piece of my heart, <laughs> and that piece of heart is going to stay the same. But I did find myself yearning to to go back into the world of words in a little little bit more of a direct way. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember some of the first books or how you first got interested into reading? For sure, I actually uh, brought one of the books with me. Uh, <laughs> I have it sitting right here. So when I was a little kid, my mom and grandma, my mom Janice and my grandma Nell. They read to me all the time. Uh, I have very vivid memories of them, you know, taking me up on the couch and then reading from a vast selection of books that, that everyone in the family would always get for me. And so my favorite book is called The Ghost of Windy Hill by Clyde Robert Beulah, uh, illustrated by Don Bolognese. And I have such memories of, of, of mom and grandma reading that to me and asking them to go back over the parts they skipped because they probably read it like 75, 100 <laughs> times to me. And I'd be like, oh, but you missed that page. And so that is one of my earliest memories. And certainly as I grew up, I, I just carried that, that love with me. And, you know, children's literature, young adult literature, literary fiction, uh, genre fiction. I, I love it all. I stay attached to it all. And certainly smart is challenging me in a, in a good way because it's allowing me to really tap into that world of children's literature, pass some of the classics or the super well-known ones to this this whole other realm that I'm, I'm learning so much about. I've just been like a sponge the last seven months. I think that's that's great. You know, I, I also grew up in Wisconsin and my, my grandmother was... Uh, the, the reading librarian in the Sheboygan, Wisconsin library. And it's, nice. it's amazing how much of an impact that has of, of, of seeing what an importance uh, your, your older family members, your, your, your parents, your grandparents put on reading and how much that, that really does hook a person into, into thinking about literature. Well, books are about the imagination. You know, when you when you watch a movie or watch a TV show, and trust me, I love my pop culture. But you're you're being given that that image, and when you read a book, um, even if it has illustrations and it's a children's book, you get to kind of weave that and turn that into to live action in your mind, and imbue these characters with with parts of yourself, and kind of get lost in their world and pull them into your world a little bit. And there's just there's something smart about that, if you will, mm-hmm. no pun intended, because you get to stretch your mind a little more uh, in the process. So, Nathan, I'm going to put you on the spot. Would you mind reading the first few sentences from your oh, wow. favorite childhood <laughs> book? Uh, can, uh, sure. Do you even have to open the book? Or <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I I do have to cheat and open it because it's it's been a it's been a little bit. But and um, because this is radio and you can't see this, Nathan has this uh, blue covered book uh it's it's with sort of 
black inky shadows on on the cover and it is well worn one would say <laughs> it, it, it has been taken care of yet worn and it smells really good there's nothing much like an old book where you can smell those pages and you know like when you walk into a used bookstore so this book definitely has that smell um so uh yeah i'm welcome to be put on the spot i'll just read a, a little bit uh chapter one evening visitors the boy and girl sat on the step in front of the candle shop. They had been waiting for a breeze, but no breeze had come. Daylight was nearly gone. We'd better go in, said the boy. Let's wait till they call us, said the girl. It's so hot up in those little rooms. It's hot here too, he said, and we told them we wouldn't stay out after dark. Can't we stay a little longer, she asked, just till the carriage goes by? In the distance, they could hear the clatter of wheels and horses' hooves on the cobblestone street. They waited and watched. The carriage came in sight. It was tall and black, and it moved slowly toward them. A man sat high in the driver's seat. Another man was inside, leaning out the window. He called to them, You there. The boy stood up. Yes, sir, he said. Does Professor Carver live on the street? asked the man. He lives here, said the boy. The man looked surprised. In the candle shop? He rents the room over the shop, said the boy. The carriage stopped. The man got out. We found it, he said. This is the place. Nathan Buck from Start Making a Reader Today. Thank you so much for reading from your <laughs> your own childhood book. And, and, you know, everything that you were saying about um, being able to paint a picture in an imagination. I mean, you're immediately, you're in a different space. You're in a different place. Uh, you know, like, like any good story, there's, uh, immediately there's, there's characters, there's some tension, there's mystery. Yeah. You know, all of our lives are full of drama and love and joy and silliness and sadness. And books are a great cathartic way to know that there are other people out there going through those things and that some of them are going to be heightened reality. Some of them are going to be more what we're used to in our own lives. But the great thing about having that adult mentor to read with you is they get to help guide you through that experience and show you that literature is a safe safe place to to broaden your horizons, to find answers for yourself, uh, to learn more about the type of community you live in. Uh, Nathan Buck with Start Making Readers Today. I'm Phil Bussey with the Nonprofit Hour. Nathan, you have another song for us? I do. Uh, this one's by Radiohead. Uh, it's called Street Spirit. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Nathan. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. We are talking with Nathan Buck, which we'll start making a reader today. Uh, you know, Nathan, I want to uh, finish out our conversation here and talking about uh, how people can get involved. 
Great question. Thank you. Um, so a lot of people love to, to check things out online, speaking of technology. So you could always go to getsmartoregon.org and, and check out our website. Again, that's www.getsmartoregon.org. Our big gala is, is going on uh, every, every year around this time. Um, and you could certainly always just call 971-634-1634. Again, that's 971-634-1634. And uh, ask to, to speak to somebody about volunteering. Uh, some people can give an hour a week. Some people want to give more. Some people maybe just want to help out at special events once in a while or come into the office and help us with a mailing we're trying to get out the door. So there are lots of ways to get involved that look a lot like what we've been talking about, but there's other ways too that, that people can get invested. So um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty low stakes process to get involved and obviously pretty, pretty high rewards for all of it. Yeah, and you've, you've talked about that. I mean, the, the rewards to the kids are, are pretty evident. Uh, and, and, but you've also said that the volunteers get a lot out of that. What, what do you think? What, what are most volunteers getting out of it? What are you hearing from the volunteers? I've been involved in volunteer management in some capacity or another for about 10 years uh, out of my nonprofit life. And it's, it's, I would say, three out of four times when a new volunteer comes on board and I've had that opportunity to have one of those initial conversations with them, they'll say, you know, I know this is selfish, but I'm getting something out of this too. And I always come around and say, shouldn't you be getting something out of this? You, you... Shouldn't you want to feel connected to your community and have, have that, those good vibes come back at you? I mean, we all want to get healed from things in our lives. This is a little bit of the woo-woo side of me talking, but mm-hmm. we all want to, to get healed. We all want to understand life better. We want to maybe pay it forward in a way to others, in a way that was or wasn't given to us in our younger years. So I don't think of it as selfish at all. I think of it as a selfless, beautiful thing for your community, and in return, the kind of the karma just naturally boomerangs back to you and you you go home feeling a little lighter, a little better about your place in the world and uh, able to sleep a little better at night knowing that that you've done your part. Nathan Buck with Start Making a Reader today. Thank you so much for coming in. This is Phil Bussey with the Nonprofit Hour. Nathan, let's have one more song to round out our conversation. All right, this is where the geek in me comes in. So um, I'm a pretty huge Tori Amos fan. I was lucky enough to see her uh, for my 20th time at the Oregon Zoo this past summer. So I couldn't let this go by without uh, having a book-related Tori song. Um, so we're going to go with A Sort of Fairy Tale by Tori Amos. Wonderful. That's all from the Nonprofit Hour this week. We'd like to thank our guests Adam Davis of Oregon Humanities and Nathan Buck of SMART. For more info, news, and goodies, search for the Nonprofit Hour on Facebook or SoundCloud, or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Nonprofit Hour. This week's Nonprofit Hour was produced by me, Ann Kirkpatrick. Special thanks to Temple Lentz for her story on the Piano Tuning School, and shout out to our hosts, Julie Falk and Phil Bussey, and to the Media Institute for Social Change for making this show possible. This is X-Ray FM, where radio is yours.